0: Billy Alzbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Remember, the AMA format is much more um, concise. So I'm going to be answering the questions one to two minutes, no more. We have a lot, and I'm hoping you guys are going to submit a lot more. Again, I'll be prioritizing comments in the live feed. All right, our first question is from Aiden O. How do you stay focused in this world full of distractions? I often find myself procrastinating and watching YouTube videos forever. All right, so this really does come down to habits and routines. This is one of those things I cannot stress enough. If you haven't built in mechanisms to deal with your lesser nature, you're forever gonna fall prey to them. Some of it is identity. Some of it is I'm the kind of person who makes use of my time. Some of it is I'm the kind of person that has goals and I do that which moves me towards my goals. But then some of it is reinforcing that belief with very strict rules, what I'll call bright lines. So uh, some of my bright lines are, I go to bed at 9 p.m., period. Second bright line, I only have 10 minutes to get out of bed. So I wake up when I wake up, I don't use an alarm. But once I realize I'm awake, then I only have 10 minutes to get out of bed, as long as I've had at least five hours. So look at the clock, see what time it is. I have 10 minutes, boom, I'm up. And I emotionally reward myself when I meet the deadline and I emotionally punish myself if I miss it. And when I miss it, by the way, it's usually by seconds. It's not like ever, I'm just like, fuck it. And I stay in bed for 20 minutes, that would not be a bright line. Uh, So, but hard and fast, 10 minutes, emotionally reward yourself or emotionally punish yourself whether you do it or not. Um, And then just having a compelling future. It is so critical that you have a compelling future, that there's actually something that you're excited about. And this makes me think of weekend warriors, for most people, no one has to tell you what to do on the weekend. You're very excited to do it. You get out of bed with some enthusiasm. There's something that you want to do that day, even if it's play video games, read, watch a movie, hang out with your significant other. Whatever it is, there is something that you're excited about, and there is a way, and I won't answer it in this question, but there is a way to put it at the center of your life and all the things that you're doing to work and to build something to put that Thing that you enjoy at the center of that so that you're generating income off of something that you love doing that is very very possible all right next question is from jeff Gige, is my guess at how you say his last name how do you develop cultivate the beauty and rage concept All right. So what is the actual process of fanning the flames of anything? It starts with focus. So if you know that you want to build beauty and rage in something, and you know that you want to spend 80% of your time in beauty. And so what is beauty? Beauty are the things that are wonderful. They not only put you in a good mood and help you and hopefully put others in a good mood and help them and, and really do something positive and empowering. Um, there are also the things that are built on excitement. It's you're looking forward to it. You're moving towards it. You're not running away from anything. The rage, on the other hand, is the darkness, also known as. It is the thing that makes you angry. It's the people that hate you. It's wanting to prove somebody wrong. It's coming from essentially a negative place. It's coming from, I won't let these people see me fail, right? That is at times, when done in the right balance, a very powerful motivator. And so to um, overlook that is a mistake. But how you cultivate them is once you've identified something that, let's say, is on the beauty side, that you really fan the flames and you really lean into why you're grateful for that, what it is about that that's wonderful, how you think you're going to help people, that reinforcing in yourself, I am the kind of person that wants to help people, that goes out of my way to do nice things for other people, that I'm going to build a business that has something at the center of it that is world positive, that isn't something that's taking away from people. You literally say those things. You say them to other people. You rally people around those notions. You talk about them. You let yourself get excited. And then, this is the hard part, you reward yourself for being the kind of person that gets excited about something so positive, okay? It's a self-reinforcing loop that just starts with saying, I think this is a good thing, I think it's a beautiful thing, it's something that I'm excited about, it's something I wanna move towards and make happen, and it's good, it's good for me, it's good for other people, it's positive, it's uplifting. And I feel good about the fact, and you literally, by saying it, you're reinforcing that notion in your head, I feel good about it. On the dark side, when somebody slights me, when I realize that they actively want for my downfall, um, they maybe do me the justice of just telling me to my face uh, that they think that I'm gonna fail, that I'll hold on to that. And I will, at strategic moments, never to exceed 20% of my time, I will focus on that and I will focus on the fact that that person thinks I'm going to fail. I will focus on the fact that I absolutely fucking refuse to let that happen. And I will stare at it nakedly and I will think about how it would feel to fail. What that would be like to know that that person believes I'm going to fail and then I did. And in that reaction to that, I'll start moving forward with Ferocity. And it is actually letting yourself feel angry. And if you need to, furrow your brow, tighten your muscles, stand up, strike a bold posture, really put yourself in an aggressive, dominant position when you're in the 20% so that you feel the power. Because the only point of dipping into the rage is to have the anger that's needed to withstand suffering and to attack it and to go after it and to make it your enemy. And that's why, if you didn't hear in all of those words how dangerous it would be to spend more than 20% of your time there, um, then you run the risk of letting that overtake you. Because thinking like that, being in that aggressive stance, is a major turnoff to people. It's corrosive internally over the long run. All right. So the next question comes from Mario. I am an entrepreneur in the design and marketing business. This year, I decided to stop working based on the agency model and promote myself. This will also give me more time to focus on a startup project. So I registered my websites and started promoting my personal brand. To help this, I created a series of videos, podcasts, where I interview other creatives around the world. I talk to Marvel illustrators, old school animators, artists, designers, etc. I'm currently in Brazil finishing the last video so I can start promoting them. I know I have the skills and the experience. I'm curious about how should I transition from a brand to my own name? Should I focus on a specific niche or market everything I can do? How did you manage to create such a strong personal brand in parallel to your business? We all do a lot of things, but I don't want to create a weak brand that has no focus. For example, when you see someone promoting himself as an entrepreneur, health advocate, photographer, and writer, sometimes it's just too much. Okay, so I totally agree with you. I think, I haven't read Ryan Holiday's book, um, Perennial Seller, but someone highlighted part of it and put it on Instagram. It's another reason why I love Instagram. If you're following the right people, you can really get good stuff. And in the quote that they posted on their Instagram was a highlighted section of the book, and it said, the thing that most makes people fail to create something that will last is that they try to do multiple disparate things at the same time. So if you look at everything that we're doing at Impact Theory, all of it adds up to the exact same thing. Our mission is to pull people out of the matrix. And so everything that we do has got to feed into that ethos. So whether that is this content where I'm just laying it out, there's no real narrative to it, it is just the direct ideology, or whether it's a show looking at pop culture and the things you can learn from pop culture, coming soon, or it's Impact Theory, the interview show, Or just the traditional narrative content, where it is straight up, you're going to watch a movie, a TV show, you're reading a comic book, all of that stuff, all has to exist to pull people out of the matrix. It all has to be empowering content. It all has to give you the same emotion for the brand. So it doesn't have to sell the same exact product, but you need to immediately understand how all of those products are connected. So yes, being an entrepreneur and health advocate, no problem there. I will tell you right now, that those are two areas that you're gonna see me talk about. But both of them are truly necessary for getting people out of the matrix. So there is an inextricable link between the mind and the body. You have to understand them both to cognitively optimize. You have to optimize your health in order to actually get your mind in the state where you truly can break free of all your limiting beliefs. So... That Whether people see that as the same or not, once you watch enough content, you'll get why that's a necessary piece of it. So it being necessary is where it becomes interesting. So for instance, if you wanna talk about being an entrepreneur and a health advocate, your photography better center around those two worlds because if it's just random photography, then that's where it gets much less interesting because now it's, it's just, um, there's no unifying theme for the audience. Okay, next question is from Philippa. I wrote a long while ago and told you I was a scientist who writes fiction on the side. I have since quit my job as a scientist because I realized I was not 100% passionate about it and I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. Plus, I was not having a lifestyle I enjoyed. Now, I have to figure out what I want to do next since I am not in a position where I can live off of my writing. I have savings that will allow me to pursue the other interests for about a year. Okay, so um, what's my advice? What's the best strategy? If you have a year and you know exactly what you're trying to accomplish, then what I would try to do is figure out what is the fastest thing that you can sell because basically you've got a year to begin generating revenue. That's actually a really long time. So you have to get a realistic picture of what can you set, what is the delta, right? So your writing makes you X and leaves you Y amount of time. Uh, How much can you monetize that remaining amount of time? And what is the gap between what you're earning as a writer and what you need to live on? So that's really the only gap that you have to cover. Then I would try to leverage the infrastructure that is already there um, to help you get jobs as a writer. So without knowing exactly what you want your writing to be, let's pretend for a second that it's something that other people value as well. So if you want to write all the time, a great way to supplement that would be, say, um, creative copy or something like that to find an ad agency that's writing really interesting copy, maybe narrative-focused, using the, or leveraging the technology of something like Upwork, where you can work from wherever on whatever hours you want You're still writing, but you're able to monetize that. Now, I'll tell you right now, you can definitely make a full-time living as a freelance writer. So it just comes down to when you say you can't make a living off your writing, how you're defining the writing, what writing you'd be willing to take for work, and how familiar you are with freelancing and making that work Um, and if you have a science background jesus you could be a science writer which they can charge an arm and a leg so even if you only made part of your day doing the science writing and the other part you tried to spend maybe writing for an ad agency or something like that that let you dive more deeply into the creative you ought to very rapidly be able to build out a portfolio of clients assuming you can actually write well and that is the hard thing to face Um, But I'll just be really arrogant for a second. It would be very easy for me to make north of $100,000, maybe significantly more than that, just as a copywriter. So, And that's just using Upwork, by the way. I could do that from Bali, Bora Bora, Tahiti, like wherever. So understanding the tools and the technology that's already out there that's got the infrastructure for something like this where you have a year and you need to build up that client base while you leverage your savings. All right, so that's my advice. Um, We're getting some questions coming in. Amazing, amazing. So here we go. Question from Brian Jacobson. How much do you think your internal dialogue has to do with your anxiety, depression? Um, in the beginning, I think that it played a huge role and that's how the neurons began to fire together and wire together. Um, you just, But it's a little more insidious than just the dialogue because my dialogue was possible, but I would paint scenarios of something going wrong. I would imagine like, and a lot of times it was just what if scenarios, like I was thinking through like to protect myself. So, you know, what if you go out there and you don't remember what you were going to say? Like, how would you deal with that? And how would you deal with it? If like the audience started booing? Well, now what I'm thinking about is the audience is booing and the, I've forgotten what I'm going to say. And so all of the things that I'm thinking through are negative scenarios. My brain begins to think about them and then some part of your brain goes, Jesus, I never even thought of that. And so that gets into uh, a pretty dicey arena. So you need to make sure that the things that you're obsessing about are things going positive, that you're actually putting in all the work. I was thinking about that today, that anytime I'm going to do something like this, I don't need the questions ahead of time. I don't need to prepare. And the reason is my entire life Is the preparation for these things. So there's not going to be any last minute cramming that I could do that would make even like a tiny bit of difference between what I already know and have spent the last 20, 30 years accumulating that knowledge, making the unique connections, talking to people about it, really establishing it as something that I I understand as an actual worldview. So when you obsess about something and don't prepare for the negative stuff. You're not setting yourself up for failure. That either happened or didn't happen based on your preparation going into whatever you're gonna do. So thinking about all the ways that things could go wrong, thinking about all the potential problems and ways that you would deal with them just focuses you on the problem and you get what you focus on. So if you focus on forgetting, you're gonna forget. If you focus on things going badly, your things are gonna go badly. You've got to be able to fill yourself with confidence. All right, next question is from Thomas Enriquez and he says... Can I come work for you if I get Jay-Z in contact with you? Yes, depends on how you define work. That's the only catch. Um, But man, if you let me define that, then absolutely. Um, But that would be amazing. And so if you're serious, we should definitely talk. All right, next question comes from Mike Bryant. What happens when technological unemployment affects 90% of humanity? If we let that happen and we haven't put in place things like basic universal income, were fucked. And there's just no long and short of that. We have to find a way to create a thriving middle class, even if that's with universal basic income. So I am not an expert on this, so I will leave it at that. But that is a problem that absolutely, without question, must be solved, hopefully by people um, who know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, next question is from KJ Norlander. Did Noah Galloway change your perspective on having kids at all in the future? No, Um, and I so hope that Chase will slack me a follow-up to that as to what they thought would do that. So um, the thing to remember about me and kids is I'm well aware that they are transformative emotionally, that they are magical little creatures who change your perspective on everything, who when you are on your deathbed, you will think, thank God I had these children I would be so profoundly alone right now if I didn't have them and the heartache and loss that one would feel at merely imagining not having children should, if they did have children at that point, I bet is very, very profound and I bet once you have kids and the chemical change that takes place, you look at people that don't have kids and you think if you would just listen, if you would just understand how beautiful and transformative and powerful it is, you would do it immediately and to that I say, That is neurochemical change. And if you study the levels of happiness of people who have children, almost universally, they are lower all the way until the child leaves and they don't return to normal until after the child leaves. So from a purely objective statistical fact perspective about momentary happiness, children ruin it. It is, as far as I can tell, the only impossible job. Like doing it right, wow, is a crapshoot. It is It is truly one of the most noble things any human being can do. And I am so grateful, obviously, that people do it and that it's a beautiful experience and that from the inside of it, even though your happiness levels go down, the sort of deep fulfillment goes up. I'm very glad that people experience that. I get that in other ways in my life. Building things is what sets me on fire. Um, But I'm I'm told that we have some um, follow-up. Uh, Wouldn't it be interesting to see what kind of role model you would be for a child? Um, A, it would be, B, I was a role model for a child and spent eight years as essentially a big brother. I call it a big brother, but it wasn't officially part of that program. Uh, But I worked with him for eight years and it was magical and transformative and has continued to echo through my life. So when I say I get it, I get what it's like to have a child look to you like um, your salvation that you're offering them a a better life than they have anywhere else. I can't tell you how many times Rashawn asked to come live with me. And um, uh, yeah, so I get it. And and I'm saying it from a place of actually understanding it. So, and I fully recognize that understanding it intellectually is different than feeling it emotionally. And he wasn't actually my child. And so I'm well aware of that. And I was very young. Um, But nonetheless, I had enough of a taste to be able to understand that I desperately, desperately want kids. The only thing I want more than kids is to not have kids. So it isn't me going, oh man, having kids sounds like it sucks. Having kids sounds like it would be amazing, but it also doesn't suit what I'm trying to do with my life. And so therefore, not having kids edges it out. And then also um, emotionally, I... Exist in a place where my life is literally my dream. I have constructed it brick by brick to be exactly what I want it to be on a daily basis. Um, so I don't have that that sense of like, man, I could really fill this void with something. And I have dogs. Um, okay, enough on that. Next question comes from Jeremy Thompson. Have have a great idea, but barely make it paycheck to paycheck. How do I start to plan and bridge the gap towards execution? Is there a way to access funding and would you recommend it for a first-time entrepreneur? Um, I would say that I absolutely have no reservations. If you can raise money, raise money, absolutely. You will learn a ton in that, but only raise money if you plan to sell the company and you're very, very happy listening to somebody else who knows a lot more about what they're doing. So if you think of it as, I've got this idea for a product and I essentially wanna go to business school, raise money and raise money from a firm that wants to be actively involved and you should then want them to be actively involved and then work very closely with them to learn about how to do a business so the next one that you could have more control. But do not raise money. If you wanna be autonomous, you want control, it'll be a nightmare. And also their model is between three and seven years, they expect you to sell. Seller IPO, I guess technically you could do that, but you're going to like the odds of you losing control are almost 100%. So if you can go into it looking at it like business school, I think it's great. Otherwise, do the side hustle thing, build it on the side, just clock a lot of ridiculous hours, go without a lot of sleep, build this thing up, learn along the way, but you can retain control that way. And if your product is real, and people are excited about it. In this day and age of social media and the ability to build communities, um, you really can get it off the ground far enough to start to get people's attention. You'd have a lot more leverage when you go to raise money if you decide to go down that path. Alternatively, you could grow a little more slowly over time and do it all yourself. So that, there's no one right answer, um, but there's also no excuses, right? So making it paycheck to paycheck is, you know, So many people live there, and at some point, you just have to be so fed up with that that you don't accept it anymore, and that you make radical change in your life, whatever that looks like. All right, next question is from Medardus, Jew. Hey, Tom. Uh, do you think the dark side is the only way to conquer doubts and fears? Thanks. No, I do not think that. So the dark side has a very specific application. It's, it is a tiny minority of your time. So 80% of all your problems, 80% of every encounter that you have, 80% of the time you have to look inward, all of it, 80% of the time. You should be coming up with the beautiful things, the things you're moving towards, the things you're grateful for, the awesome stuff in your life, all the great things you know will come out of this. If you can just get your company across the finish line, help your children, um, volunteer your time, be a politician, like whatever your thing is, it doesn't have to be an entrepreneur, 80% of all of those problems will be solved with the beautiful things. The rage comes in, I find for me, the rage is about those times where I am, I'm just spent. I don't have any more. And I, maybe I've failed and I'm just embarrassed and I'm tired and I don't want to keep going or I'm scared. And it's like, fuck, am I actually going to be able to pull this off? At those moments when the beautiful things are in the throes of failing me, that's when I think about the people who want me to fail. And that for me, I'm just, I don't tolerate that. I don't accept that I'm going to give them what they want. I don't accept that. That would feel like so much shit. So because I'm absolutely unwilling to tolerate that in myself, that kicks me in the ass and gets me going again. But I know better than to spend a lot of time there. But I leverage that. That is nature's gift. It is how you're able to endure more suffering. Anger. Anger allows you to endure more suffering. They've done studies on this. This isn't me just saying like in a woo-woo way. Literally. Anger allows you to endure more suffering. So when the only answer is suffer more, keep going, that's when I leverage anger. Only after I've tried all the beautiful things and they continue to fail me. Anger will make you take action. Just true. Okay. Um, Next question comes from Siddharth Kapoor. I'm good at communicating and arguing. Law can be a good career option for me, but I am late for it. Which other careers can be good for me? I'm late for it. I'm assuming that means you think you're too old, and I would say that's a bad reason not to do something. So I would say the reason you should either do or not do it is whether you think that you will fall in love with it, whether it will really be a deep passion for you, whether it will make you come alive, and whether or not it's the thing that you would love doing every day, even if you were failing. Um, if that's law, then get into it. I will say that lawyers have the highest rate of depression and may, I may be wrong about this, but may also have the highest rate of suicide. That part I could be making up the depression thing I'm sure about. Um, because being a lawyer, you have to be negative. You have to look at all the things that could go wrong. And like I was saying before, when you obsessively focus on all the things that could go wrong, you're just living in negative land. So, um, maybe weigh that and I wouldn't worry about, um, whether or not you're too late for that. So the last part, what other careers could be good for you? Being persuasive and communicating well works everywhere. So there literally isn't, uh, an arena where even if you're a solo writer, being able to write persuasive arguments is still monetizable. So I would say that that's universal applies everywhere. All right. Next question from Aaron Elias. What is your take on energy upgrades and waves sweeping the earth What is your take on ascension? I have no idea. I've never heard those words put together in that fashion before. I fear I'm gonna fail you entirely. Um, I have absolutely nothing but ignorance on this topic. Forgive me. Um, All right, next up, Carolina Wilk. Tom, what do you think about Dr. John Demartini's teachings? Two in a row, totally ignorant. I have no idea who Dr. John Demartini is. Forgive me. Uh, Next question, Jessica Teresia. How do you find your audience once you have a passion? I want to speak, but I can't help everyone at once. I was told I need to find my audience. Did you do this, and did you find value in this? All right, let's deconstruct this a bit. So... In the world of social media, the easiest way to begin to build your audience, and so there's a difference between social media and speaking. With speaking, you need to put together a reel that shows how you can speak. You need to pick a topic that you're very good at that have speaking opportunities, um, and then start small, start with local groups, get up and speak, make sure you're recording yourself so that you get this reel of people, Uh, make sure you post it on your own channel so people can see it and that you're showing up for certain keywords so when people are searching for that, they're gonna see you partner up with other um, people especially, and this is easy if you're in the world of motivation, Uh, If you're in the world of motivation, then there are all kinds of accounts that are desperately looking for content. And if you're able to speak very powerfully, that you could start sending them your content, getting a partnership going with them so that um, you're able to... Get them pushing you out. Maybe they have a small audience to start, but let's say if they only have a 1,000 people, that's 1,000 people that otherwise wouldn't have seen you. Um, so building those relationships, going out and being valuable to their community, just building this up brick by brick, getting more and more people exposed to your ideas, create a high-value ad, um, social accounts, whether that's Twitter, whether that's Instagram, Facebook, all of it do Facebook Lives, um, maybe only a few people show up in the beginning, but if you're adding value to their life, they're going to tell somebody about it. So this all comes down to how good are your talks? How much value do they really add to people? And if it adds a lot of value, then you'll find that people just keep coming back. And, and if you're not growing, here's the hard reality. If you're not growing, you're not adding enough value. So one of the most powerful things that I learned from reading Disney's biography was that. Every time the company wasn't where he wanted it to be, he refocused on making the product better, the product better, the product better. It's not about making the marketing better, marketing better, marketing better. It's about really, really focusing on the product. And in this case, the speech is your product. So making sure that you get your product great. Uh, And somebody that's done a really good job of talking about that process is Lewis Howes. So I would go hit him up, Um, I would check out what he's done, what he did, his whole thing with going to Toastmasters and starting out like he was reading off a sheet of paper, his hands were trembling, he couldn't even look up from the piece of paper, and then you know, however many months or year later, he's getting paid to speak. So putting in the reps, getting better practicing, and then also in a group like that, you're meeting other speakers who may be getting gigs and they may be asked to do a gig that they don't want to do, but then they think of you, and so they pass it on to you. I've gotten a lot of my speaking work that way. It's just word of mouth. So Get out there, get after it. Uh, Next question comes from Cage Hits. Cage Hits, really? Cage Hits. That's amazing. That's so amazing, I'm tempted to think it's a screen name. But Cage Hits says, you say you are building this community uh, for later down the road to build the studio. What skills would you recommend we cultivate now in order to provide you with value down the road? Questions like these make me want to like cuddle the camera or the microphone or something. Like you can't imagine what it means to me and everyone else here when you ask a question like that, dude. Anybody that says social media is like destroying the fabric of society, they've built the wrong community. Can we just agree on that? Thank you just first of all for asking that question. That's so amazing. Um, I will say this, pursue your truest and best life. Whatever makes you come alive, whether it can be useful to us or not, like, don't worry about that. We're going to be here. Um, We are going to remain providing content for free. Uh, So don't think you have to help us to be an amazing contributor to this community. Just asking that question is fucking amazing. And I'm so grateful for it um the skill set that we will need the ones that we're really focused on now we need writers and artists that's a really really big deal for us so writers and artists we're building out um contests we're hopefully partnering up with I guess I won't say until it's real we're partnering up with a very large company that is just amazing at attracting writing talent I'm very excited about that I really really hope we close that um but yeah uh we're starting right now on comics and So we need writers for comics. We need artists for comics. Ultimately, we'll also be putting together, so the whole notion of Impact House is meant to get um, creatives here, whether screenwriters, whether traditional authors, um, whether comic book writers and artists, bringing people together to meet each other, to bounce ideas, to get things going. We'll present people with ideas that we're trying to get into production. So if somebody is graduating, or not graduating, gravitating towards that and they want to latch on to one of those projects and, and um, go into our development cycle, then that's also something. So I guess watch. We'll be making announcements around that. and You can also ping us at Connect. Uh, one of the contracts that I'm working on now is our submission thing. So you guys can submit it, know exactly what your rights are, who retains what, all that good stuff. Uh, so, but anyway, to the first part, I'll just reinforce that live the life that makes you feel most alive. Um, and if that aligns with us, that's really, really amazing, but you can still be a really vibrant contributor to this community without that. Um, okay. Next question, Davis Sarat, how besides speaking for free a lot, do you build a career and, and, and a following as a speaker? How do you self-publish your book effectively? All right, those are two very different questions. Um, one I'll, uh, let me just go through them. All right, so how do you build a career and a following as a speaker? Um, so you, you're sort of discounting the one thing that I would say is the right answer, and that is speak for free a lot. And the reason that you're going to be doing that is just like interning. You're going to be getting your name out there. You're going to deliver value. There's no barrier to entry to bringing you on other than they need to vet to make sure that you can actually do it. But if you can do it, you're getting what you want. It's not the money. The money's not what you're after. The money, or sorry, the the short-term money is not what you're after. The long-term money only comes if you're able to build a reputation and really improve as a speaker, get out there, and absolutely crush it, right? So don't Lose out on the opportunity to make $100,000 a speech later because you want $5,000 a speech now, okay? Way better to say, you know what, I am going to do this one for free. You know what my normal fee is, $10,000 a speech, but actually I'm uh, I'm going to waive this one and I'm going to do it for free. You can even do that so that you're letting it be known that like that's your normal fee, but your job if you're trying to build a following especially, you've got to get out and do it. It's literally shaking hands, kissing babies, It's letting people know you're there to be of service to them and that you're not just trying to be a rock star. If you swagger out on the stage, do your thing, drop the mic, and then peace the fuck out, like you're not gonna build a following. So in the beginning, like, dude, let me tell you, when like I'm going tonight, if you're in the LA area, 7 p.m. downtown LA, boomtown baby, look it up, meet and greet. And despite the fact that I have a 9 p.m. bedtime, I will stay there and answer every question that people have. Tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy to start run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com impact. has it. And with eBay guaranteed fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Period. Period. Why? Because I want you guys to know that I'm serving you. And I want to do that because ultimately, I'm going to need your help. I'm gonna need your support as we're building the studio out and there are gonna be things that hopefully I can create that are valuable enough to you um, that you would rather have that thing than the money but the only way that you're gonna feel that is if you recognize what this company really stands for, who I really am as a person, Um, that's that's my silver bullet and so we've built what I think is one of the most rapidly growing organic audiences and take organic lightly, we do a lot of cool marketing shit, some of which we throw money at But it's all real people. It's not like bot farms in India or anything. So we've got to be one of the fastest growing. And the reason for that is this company, every human being that touches any aspect of this company is just dripping a desire to help. So as long as people feel that and you're willing to go the extra mile, I think you can really build something special. All right, next question. And I did fail you on the, the self-publishing thing, but um, I went a little long in the first part. And I don't have, I've never self-published a book before, so I'd just be um, giving you sort of best practices of marketing. Anyway, uh, question from David Daly. If humans are truly malleable and capable of achieving anything, why must we put in thousands of hours to master a skill? Why can't humans master skills much more rapidly than this? All right, this is actually a fascinating part of... Um, evolution and the trade-offs that we have done so if you look at other animals take ants for instance there is a certain type of ant i forget their name but they can build as a unit complex structures they can pick things up they can hang from things they create shapes they turn into towers it's insanity and all of that is pre-programmed nobody teaches them anything from the drop the moment they come out they're ready to go they can build these structures it's all just instinct it's all built in Now, when you build stuff in, what you're trading off is flexibility. So the reason that it takes so much time and energy is because we have said, you know what, don't pre-build much in, but instead be a canvas that can respond aggressively to its environment, that you can go in virtually any direction that you need to go in. And that flexibility giving us the um, opportunity to Thrive in crazy environments, to specialize in something over time, to change our specialization, to um, adapt to changes, dramatic changes in the climate that we otherwise um, would fall prey to. That's why we've survived long enough to become the apex predator. Things that wiped out other people didn't wipe us out because we could adapt. So it's a trade-off for maybe complexity of skill set from day one and flexibility of skill set over the long run. So that is why. Um, all right, next up from Cameron R.N. Any new books you would add to your 25 must-read list? I, uh, is grit on there yet? No. We need to add grit. So I'll just tell you: grit, 100%. Um, some of the other books are more sort of fetishy for me, like Homo Deus rocked my world, but I wouldn't put it on the 25. The 25 aren't just the best books I've read, they're the most foundational to building an empowering mindset. And so there are many, many, many amazing books that I'm tempted to just keep making that list longer and longer, which is why we did the knowledge trail. But right now, I would say, with the exception of Grit, which does need to be on the list, I don't have anything that I think is foundational enough uh, to add. But I think we've listed something roughly like the last Chase, last 100 books I've read. Probably, yeah. Something like that. So um, take a look at that moving Excuse me, moving forward, we're going to be um, posting my notes that I take on the book. Uh, Bear with me, I take the notes for me, so I don't write them uh, worried about whether they'll make sense to you. Sorry, Uh, it's very selfish, I know, but we thought people might enjoy seeing them anyway, so we'll be doing that moving forward. All right, Uh, Corinne Davis. How do you differentiate between when it's time to pivot or dig in? All right, so this is the grit or quit question, which I find really interesting. And um, Eric Barker covers this in his book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And in that, he talks about whoop, W O O P. And whoop is the device you're gonna use to figure out whether you like something enough to push on or whether it's something that you should quit. So it goes like this. The W is for wish. What is your wish? What do you want to make come true? O is for obstacle. So what is the, um, sorry, O, the first O is an obstacle. It is, oh God, is it objective? I'm gonna say it is. Somebody's gonna need to look this up. I'm failing myself right now. Um, Objective, like how do you actually plan to get there? What is the path to that? Then the next one, so basically making your wish concrete. So that's the important uh, part, even if I'm not getting the right word. The second O is um, obstacle. Wow. So what is the obstacle that you're going to have to overcome in order to get there? And then the last, the P is, are you looking this up by any chance? (laughs) Plan. Alright, so I think I need to look these up. I should have fast access to this. Oh god, let's see how fast we can get there. Because I've just muddled this one up. I'm too terrified or horrified with myself. Um so wish outcome obstacle plan. All right, so wish, the outcome, so making it specific and concrete. So the wish, I want to be rich one day. The outcome, I want to be rich by building a nutrition company. Okay. Obstacle. What's going to stop me? There's 1,600 protein bars on the market, so how we differentiate ourselves? We're going to have to become our own manufacturers, create something new, and market it in a whole different way. Plan. Okay, how do we actually take over social media? What does a 1,000 screaming fans look like? And you just back into that. Um, You've all heard me, I assume at this point, heard how I backed into why we're creating a studio and all that, so I won't do that. It's also very long, um, but that's whoop. All right. So if when you do your whoop, you sit back and go, man, I'm ready to go after this This is amazing. I'm so glad I did it. I now have my plan. I know exactly what I'm trying to do. That's something that you should pursue. You should grit it out and keep going. Even if it's getting hard. If when you lay out the plan, you're like, dear God, that sounds exhausting. I'm not sure I want to do that. Then that's something that you should quit and move on to something else. All right. Found that pretty fast. Chase, thank you for your help. Um, next one, Chris Berry. Do you think glyphosate is behind a lot of the health problems associated with the microbiome being damaged? All right, so this is one of those where I'm early enough in my research that I know the word glyphosate, but I don't remember what it means, so I'm going to look it up really fast, and then I will tell you what I think is behind glyphosate. Um, Oh, the pesticide. So this is that thing, yeah, that everybody is um, super freaked out over. I think it's in Roundup, um, and people just are not happy about this shit. Uh, I don't know. I think that environmental toxins is part of it, and there's this whole concept called POPs, um, persistent something pollutants. Uh, and I don't remember what the O stands for. I'm really, I'm not doing well with my acronyms today. Um, but persistent pollutants... The exposure that we get, BPA is one that people talk about a lot. I think that you're probably getting, it's one of the things that either disrupts your endocrine system, disrupts the microbiome itself. One thing that I'm, I'm testing, like if you're really paying attention, my Snapple is now see-through. And the reason that I do see-through Snapple now, I'm, I'm cutting it about two-thirds water and a third Snapple, is I want to see if I notice any difference from significantly reducing and maybe ultimately completely cutting out all artificial sweeteners from my diet. I want to see. Um, I for so long just relied on the fact that I don't feel any difference that that doesn't mean that I'm not edging towards catastrophe every day. So I'm going to try it and give it a real legitimate shot. Let's call it 60 to 90 days. Um, with right now I'll commit to with highly minimized amounts of artificial sweeteners. Um, I won't go all the way cause there's some things in my diet that God, it'd be hard to get the level of fat in my diet that I want in a pleasurable manner without artificial sweeteners. And since I'm not convinced yet that artificial sweeteners disrupt things as much as they might. So anyway, um, glyphosate, it's bad. Clearly, we should get it out as fast as we can. Um, any toxins that cause any sort of disruption in the body, they all stack. So I doubt the glyphosate is like the end all be all, but I bet it ain't helping. So yeah, that is uh, that is the microbiome, man. That shit is fascinating. You want to talk about something, I, I have to stop myself from putting on the 25 list. Um, and And I might one day, just because the the connection between your gut and your brain is so powerful. You just can't get your mind where it needs to be. All right. Uh, Nathan- Nathaniel? Nathaniel. Arity. <laughs> Man. Oh, that's as close as I'm going to get. All right. When are you coming to Indonesia? Uh, I need to share a lot of things. I have no plans to come to Indonesia yet. I would love to have a reason to go to Indonesia. You can certainly share here. I know this can be uh, very... nerve-wracking to share something vulnerable. Uh, You can also DM me. That may be a way to get something across a little easier than me coming all the way to Indonesia. Um, Next question, Avi Ad. You've talked about depression and the indisputable benefits of exercise. There is also research building on the therapeutic use of psychedelics. Do you have any experience um, with any? So I'm super intrigued by what's going on in the areas of psychedelic research on that. And if you read um, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler's book, Stealing Fire, they go into that really intriguing. And I'll be watching very closely over the next several years. I've never experimented with psychedelics because I am a chicken. Uh, There's no reason other than that. I'm just afraid that something will happen. Um, And I guess my identity for so long has been that of the guy that doesn't do drugs. Um, And uh, yeah, so I I drink occasionally alcohol and my wife is... um, gotten me to try weed I think three or four times Ah, it's just not my bag man so anyway it's funny though that I still consider myself the guy that doesn't do drugs even though I drink occasionally and I have smoked uh weed a few times and that likens back to Dan Ariely's whole thing about people will he says it in the context of lying people will lie um right up to the point where it forces them to change their identity and that's where they stop And so I guess I do the exact amount of drugs that I can do and still feel like I'm a guy that doesn't do drugs to be consistent with my identity. Uh, Fascinating the way the human mind works. So I can't help you with psychedelics, but find it very, very, very intriguing. Um, And honestly, it's one of those things, the more data that comes out, like I might have to try it um, if for no other reason than to see if it has an impact on my anxiety, which would be utterly fascinating. All right, Um, Ahlan, Ananda Sivam. Wow. I want to hear that said well. Hi, Tom. I'm a music composer studying composition and writing music for advertisements and soundtracks for short films. How do you recommend I build relationships with agencies to receive more scoring work as well as promote myself through Snap as it's a closed platform? Let me know if you can. Thanks. All right. Dude, Being in the game of creating music right now in this day and age is unbelievable. So right now, my friend, there are hundreds, if not more, motivational accounts. They're so desperate for music. And I'll count us in that. So every week we put out impact quotes. We have to find music somewhere, somehow, that we're not gonna get a copyright flag for using. If you write amazing music, there are so many people that would desperately want to get a hold of that music write something for them, give them, you don't even have to give them exclusive rights. Just let them use it. If you let them use it, they will tag the life out of you. So you get a tag, you start finding big accounts and you can write really powerful music. Remember this all comes down to how good are you really? So you actually have to be good. So I'm I'm basing this all on the desperate hope that you don't just think you're talented, that you're actually talented. But if you're actually talented, my friend, in this day and age with social media, with YouTube, people are desperate for music. Desperate. So go forth and prosper. You should be pinging them all. Every morning should start with hours of outreach, telling people that you write music and that you want to give them music. They'll flip out. They will flip out. All right, Chris Good. What's your thoughts on the best ways to overcome the apathy or lack of drive when it comes to depression in order to get the momentum you need to start making progress again? Okay. Depends on where on the depressive spectrum you fall. So I'm going to say that you're all the way over here, like catastrophic, can't get out. I've been in it for a year or more. Like this is just bad news. I don't want to get out of bed. Nothing. All right. That is a brain chemistry imbalance. It is also almost certainly tied to your gut. So the first thing I would do, I'm not bullshitting you. The first thing I would do is read The Gut-Brain Connection is the name of the book. That talks about the two-way communication, the neurotransmitters that are signaled and received, the fact that I think it's 70, percent no, it's 95% of the serotonin in your body is stored in your gut. Anybody else hearing that? 95%, it's not all made there, but 95% of the serotonin, one of the things that makes you feel good, elevates your mood, in fact, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It basically stops your serotonin from being re-metabolized. So serotonin is the name of the game when it comes to depression. 95% of it is stored in your gut. So if your gut is fucked up, you can imagine that your serotonin levels are in real danger. So that is something that you really have to just become an expert in. So doing the hard work on like the, the chemistry of your problem. I bet you thought I was gonna say start with positive thoughts or some stuff, which you do wanna do, but those are, they have to be in addition. I don't think you're gonna think your way out of Clinical depression. So, you're going to have to get way more hardcore about identifying the chemical imbalance that you have, getting the neurotransmitters right, ideally without drug intervention. But if you need it, use it 100%. That is way better than not doing anything. But anytime you're taking, taking an exogenous um, source, you should be trying as rapidly as you can to get off of it. Now, let me tell you, if I needed drugs, I would use drugs. I'm just saying, it's not the greatest long-term strategy, so um, move away from it if you can. All right, uh, questions from Barry Hanna. You have had the chance to sit down with some amazingly impactful individuals, both with Impact Theory and Inside Quest. How do you feel impact, who do you feel impacted you the most? How has this impacted your business and personal life? Who the most? <sighs> He's my favorite. So you were saying Goggins, right? He's my favorite, and he had a big impact on me, but that's really about suffering. And the honest answer is Tim Ferriss. But he impacted me with his book, and I don't think people know how much that book changed the course of my life. I read The 4-Hour Workweek, and it made me See marketing in a whole new way, and that whole new way ended up becoming Quest Nutrition. I was looking for my thousand screaming fans, which is he got from Kevin Kelly, I think, but I read about it in Tim Ferriss. Um, Never checking my email, I got that from the Four Hour Work Week, and what that has done to my the demands of. Me to always control my own company and where i 'm going and not let not be reactive to other people, but to have a plan and to be disciplined in my execution against it um, all of that is critically important, so it wasn't from the interview uh but Him and Tony Robbins probably have had the biggest impact on my life and as they've both been guests. So the person that in real time maybe had the biggest impact on me, uh, actually two people, and one of these is gonna surprise you. So Goggins, yes. Um, And then the other was Blake Leeper. And Blake Leeper changed this show. And if it wasn't for him, he was somebody back at Inside Quest. At Inside Quest, we were in our formative years. We didn't really know what the show was. I thought it was gonna be all business all the time. I didn't want people who hadn't like accomplished just crazy things in their life. And they were pitching this kid really hard who was like trying to make a comeback. Like he'd been, uh, he'd gotten in trouble for drinking and then he um, got like kicked out of a competition or something because he tested positive for cocaine. And they're like, but he's a double amputee and he can run. And I was just like, God, is, where does this go? And the brilliant people behind the show, Christopher, Courtney, Lisa, and I'll just assume Casey was in on it as well, they were just like, you really have to give this guy a shot. And so I did it. And halfway through the interview, I realized this, this, his human interest story, his overcoming the obstacles, his imperfections, his willingness to be raw and vulnerable, and my... um, willingness to reciprocate and, and go there with him is the show at its finest. And so then it was like, Oh my God, you guys are so right. Like we need more guests like this. And that really became the new paradigm for the show. All right. That feels a little indulgent. There's not a lot you guys can take away from that. So I'll move on. Um, Carolina Wilk asks, what do you think about the law of attraction? It's 50% awesome and 50% total bullshit. So the 50% that is awesome is you get what you focus on. And so if you're thinking about I can make these positive things happen, I can do this, Um, it's going to give you the sense of confidence and belief that allows you to take that first step. And that first step is everything. The part that's total bullshit is um, I can will a parking spot. I still can't believe that was actually an example they gave. I can will a parking spot into existence. It's called waiting around long enough till somebody in a parking spot that you want leaves. Like, ugh. So anything that inspires people to not take action, to just sit there and think about something, that, that winds me up. So massive action is the only thing that works. So if you're thinking about positive things, all the things that you want to make come true, all of that, and it's forcing you to take massive action. You're going out, and you're executing, you believe that you can do it, you focus on that you can do it, and then you actually learn the skills acquired, Ah, and go and execute, then that's fucking amazing. So when I watched The Secret, I loved it, and I just shut off my brain to the parts that I thought were madness, which, by the way, is a very good technique. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because half of it doesn't make any fucking sense doesn't mean that the other half isn't amazing. So use what makes sense. Discard what doesn't. That's how you become a unique person. All right. Next up, uh, Miriam Tufani. How do you deal with disappointments along the way when you've started a new business? Okay, so this one for me, the thing that I use to combat disappointment disappointments is twofold one i believe i can learn anything so the failure the disappointment okay what did i learn what can i do better next time um and then also i'm viewing myself on a very long timeline so i'm messing up uh i have failed i missed a huge opportunity let's say and there's an awesome quote from jim carrey he said until you have had somebody come up to you and say, hey, there's so-and-so out in the audience tonight and they're, they're make or break. If you do well tonight, you're gonna make it. If you do poorly tonight, it's never gonna happen for you. He said, until you fuck that up five times, you haven't even started yet. And I loved that so much because people are gonna think, oh my God, it's all riding on this one thing. Bullshit. No NBA career rides on any one shot, never rides on any one game. It doesn't even ride on any one championship series. At the end of the day is about showing up consistently day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, relentlessly acquiring skills, relentlessly learning from your mistakes so that all of this is adding up to something. So I'm on Joe Rogan today. That interview goes so many fucking weird places and it was really fun because on many of them, not all of them, but on many of them, like, yeah, I've thought a lot about this. I've read about this. I've Oh, wow, like, here's a topic I never thought we were going to talk about, but I can go there because I've been out of just a, a desire to learn. I've been reading about a lot of different topics to find out which ones stick, which ones are exciting for me, which ones really add up to something that's usable. So when you take yourself over a long timeline and you just repeat these behaviors over and over and over and over like the obstacles they they fade into the distance it just becomes one more learning experience and when you remember that all of life is but practice and nothing is ever performance there is no big day there's only one more time to practice dealing under a high stress situation or under the bright lights like whatever the case may be but when you know this is just one more opportunity to practice and I will get another opportunity again because I'm willing to get great. I want everyone to listen to the following words. These words are often repeated and so they become cliche and so people stop to hear the real power in the words. If you want to be successful, there is one path. Get so good, they can't ignore you. Get so good, they can't ignore you if they can ignore you, you have not yet gotten good enough. And once you just accept that fucking hardcore truth that if they can ignore you, you have not yet gotten good enough. Go watch Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. That, that is an awesome fucking tale. Of a guy who got so fucking good, they could not ignore him. They wanted to at every turn. The amount of racism that that guy ran into is fucking insane. He created um, the show, oh God, what's it called? Where he's the monk traveling the land, grasshopper, Kung Fu. He created Kung Fu about himself, a Chinese man. It was played by a fucking white guy. I've got to imagine that was very troubling for him. But did he just flip out, shut down, and say this is unfair? No, he kept getting better, and he started making movies. Fuck them. If they won't let me on TV, then I'm gonna make movies, and I'm gonna make martial arts films that are unlike anything else anyone has seen. He used to take challengers in um, martial arts competitions. He would get in the ring and say, hey, anybody wanna fight? If you wanna fight, come in right now. I will fight you. And just to show people, I'm the best fucking martial artist. There's no one else that can touch me. And because he was that good, he went as far as he went. You got to get so good. People can't ignore you. All right. That's one I can just fucking keep going about. All right. uh, Jimmy Allen. And by the way, I saw a minute ago somebody doing a driving symbol. Are we running out of time? Well, so we can add them all to the 24-hour thing. 24-hour live coming to you live next Wednesday. So the reason that we're doing the live, by the way, is we are about to cross over to 100,000 likes on Facebook and to show my deep and unending gratitude to this amazing... Do you guys know how different you are than most communities? This is fucking crazy. The only advice anyone ever gives people, don't read the comments, don't read the comments, don't read the comments. When I need to be cheered up, I read the comments. You guys are so supportive of each other. You're so supportive of the show. You're so supportive of me and the ideas that we're trying to get out there. It's unbelievable. I am deeply grateful. I feel compelled to do an act of service. And so as a a thank you and a sincere sign of my appreciation, for 24 hours, I will not sleep. I will not do anything but bring you entertaining Information that you can use. We're going to have a bunch of guests. We're going to have new shows that we've never done before. We're going to do uh, live versions of shows that you're used to. We're going to do super intimate Q&As. And I will answer every single, no matter how long I have to stay up, we will answer every single question that gets submitted by 6 a.m. on the 24th. So only reason that I'm capping it there is I don't want to be trolled that's the truth. So as long as it's submitted by 6am, um, I will answer every single question in that 24 hour period. So, um, join me. It's going to be very special. I know some of the team here is going to stay up even though they don't have to, um, to be a part of it. God, I love them for that. Uh, this team is unreal. They're unbelievable. I want to, um, Hug the ones that like to be hugged, which we broke down doing the captivate research and uh, wave at the ones that don't. Uh, Yeah, it's amazing. I'm insanely grateful. So I asked that. We're doing a live event tonight. Otherwise, I would just stay here until all questions were answered. This is amazing how many questions you guys are submitting. I'm really grateful for that as well. Uh, If you're in the LA area, we are going tonight, 7 p.m., Boomtown. Boomtown? Confirmation, please. Boomtown Brewery going to Boomtown Brewery, I will be answering questions live and in the flesh, Uh, I will stay until they kick us out, and then I'll answer questions out in the parking lot if I have to, but I will stay until every question has been answered, no matter how long it takes, Um, so meet me, Boomtown Brewery, downtown Los Angeles, tonight at 7 p.m., and so how long do I have right now to answer questions before we have to leave, and I I need like a 15-minute buffer, Okay, so we've got about five minutes left. All right, so Jimmy Allen. "'I forever have been an extremely ambitious person. "'The past months, I have been attacking "'as many podcasts, books, and everything "'from yourself and suggested people. "'I have now become an extremely habitual person, "'and the changes have been dramatic. "'I own a successful business that I devote everything to. "'How do I balance my home work life more efficiently? "'My partner and I are extremely happy, "'but I can't help feel her life is on hold, "'so I achieve my goals.'" Thank you for the person you are. Wow, thank you. That's very kind. Okay, um, there is no universal answer to this. So the truth is I have no interest in balance, none whatsoever. So one of the reasons that I don't want to have kids is I don't want something pulling from my attention. So the reason that my wife and I founded the company together was the more we became ourselves and pursued our goals, we wanted that to be driving us together. Um, we wanted to be sharing things. We wanted to automatically know what the other person is doing just because we're so entrenched we're so in it together we're, we're building something um side by side so that is how we have found what my wife calls harmony which she got from um Lisa Nichols, very amazing and talented Lisa Nichols. Uh, I don't seek balance, I seek harmony. Um, So that's something to really think about. At the end of the day, you should be trying to live the life that makes you feel most alive and finding the way to engage your partner in that is very important and I love how thoughtful you're being about your partner and that you're thinking about her. uh, That is... A great sign that great things lay ahead for you. You guys need to find what that way is for her to get the time that she needs. It's going to start with communication. Ask her flat out, like, "What do you need? Is it um, if like half of Saturday is just you and me, nothing else, no phones, no email, no matter what? Like that is our time, and there are going to be some awesome moments where something in your company is burning to the ground, and you're going to show her that she's more important. That. That half a Saturday is you and her, and you're going to ignore it, and you're going to wait until the end. So moments like that, I think, is just very, very important to figure out what those important things are. Okay, time for one more. How can I have a good relationship with my boss? You're gonna to have to know a lot about your boss. You're going to have to figure out what it is that makes your boss tick what's their communication style what is their um their value system literally read captivate it will really help you what's their ocean score so that you understand how they perceive the world you understand the things that mean something to them so that you can communicate in their language um and then at the end of the day like if you know what they want you've had them lay it out you know exactly what they expect you know what their language is how to communicate back then it's about just an obscene level of performance for your own reasons by the way By the way, don't do it to impress your boss. Do it because you want to be a linchpin. Do it because that makes you feel good for yourself. Do it because that level of skill, that ability to play at that level, is marketable. You can go anywhere. But I find that one, and some of this does depend—is your boss. insecure or have have they gotten to a good place in their life. Um, If they're insecure, then unfortunately things like flattery can go a very long way. And there's some very distressing studies about how even when somebody knows that the flattery is insincere, that they still like it so understanding that if there's politics in your company figuring those out what are ways that you can make your boss look good helping other people shine is always a pretty great way to get ahead uh, but if i had to boil it back to everything that's universal communication understanding their communication style understanding their values and really getting absolute clarity with what they want and then deliver on that and surpass all expectations in this next clip i discuss the difference between belief And delusion.
1: All right, first question without further ado is from Plastic Funnel. That's quite the name. Is your answer to coping with the feeling of being a fraud uh, in your answer, that makes a lot more sense, in your answer to coping with the feeling of being a fraud, you sound like a madman in your hunger to learn on a long on a long enough timeline, you will win. But where do you draw the line between a self-reinforced delusion that is strategically useful and not useful? It's a great question. Um, so this is something that you have to get really good at, being able to hold two competing ideas in your head at the same time, being able to feel like, I really have this, I've got it, I know what I'm doing, I'm moving forward, full steam ahead, and checking yourself and making sure that that confidence isn't spilling over into destructive delusion. I won't even say to monitor it just to make sure that it's not spilling over into delusion because almost certainly, if you've never done something before, to believe that you can is pure delusion. To believe you can learn, on the other hand, is not. But that's where you've got to have that balance. You've really got to believe that you're going to pull this off, that you're going to figure it out, that somehow, some way, that you're going to be the one that figures out what nobody else could figure out. And I'll say that really is delusional statistically speaking, certainly, and you have to then check that against, okay, where where is the, the borders of usability here? It's good that I'm thinking like that. It's good that I have the energy. It's good, and this is the most important part, that I have the willingness to act decisively, which is where most people fall down, but you really do have to then check yourself and say, okay, where are my points of weakness? And what I find is <clears throat> a lot of times, What you need over here on the I can do this side is uh, a quiet self-belief that's inside you. You don't have to trumpet that a lot, but you need that quiet self-belief. What you need to get other people rallied around you is they need to see decisiveness. They need to see certainty. There is so much intoxication to certainty. So now we've got those things. We believe in ourselves, our ability to learn and adapt. Cool. Our team believes that that we believe we know what we're doing awesome, and they can get excited by that certainty, the clarity of vision. They know exactly how to execute. There's no ambiguity. There's no confusion. Those are the things that kill teams. Then, on the other hand, we have an ability to very clearly articulate to ourselves, if nobody else, but oftentimes I do involve the team on this, to articulate to ourselves what our weakest points are and what the parts in the puzzle that we're trying to solve for. Now, the reason I'm able to involve the team in that is because they can see that I'm not wavering on my certainty of what to do. So I'm saying, do this, go here, talk to this person, say this, get that, think about it like this. Then over here, I can say, okay, and now we're going to flip it over. We're going to look at the underbelly of the strategy and see if we're actually right. And I'll walk people through my logic. Now, this is where if your logic isn't sound, your team is going to revolt. So my thing is by the time I'm talking to the team, and certainly by the time that I'm revealing my soft underbelly, I have thought about this so much that I really, really have the issue conceptualized. And as long as there's a logical through line, in my um, plan that the team can hold on to, they'll go, okay, I dig it, his logic makes sense, and the punchline of his logic is go do this for now. We're gonna revisit it, we're gonna come check back. So there's a self-awareness in the process of knowing I could be wrong, I'm always gonna be checking myself, I'm gonna be looking to see if those things that I'm telling the team to go do, if they're actually revealing or giving us results or not, and if they're not, then we're going to adjust strategy. And because I've told everybody where we're at, but I've kept everybody focused with the certainty, the clarity, the decisiveness, then other voices can be heard. We're constantly looking and checking at that, but this process of doing what they call red team, blue team, where you're actively trying to pick holes in your, um, the, the way you plan, what you're actually executing, those voices have been in the mix. They feel like they're being heard, and that's another critical part to keeping the team going. Okay, so there it is. All right, Ray Paulus. How do you limit yourself, especially to new opportunities? Oftentimes, they get overloaded with the responsibility of each new opportunity. Okay, 80% of business is knowing what not to do. That's the really hard part. (coughs) Most people have no dearth of opportunities. And I think that that has certainly uh, been true in my life. I think that that's certainly true for most people. The real hard part is being in that room with a thousand doors and knowing which doors to close. So you have to get really good at creating certainty, at being decisive, at being willing to take a step. And (coughs) when it comes to that, honestly, the thing that I've noticed most is just a willingness. (coughs) (coughs) I'm trying to survive the tail end of an illness here. The willingness to make a decision, even when you don't have all the information, that's really where we separate the people that go on to win from the people that just stand still. Because remember, the most data-rich information stream is action. Whether that action is a win or a loss... (coughs) is somewhat irrelevant. The whole point is you have to be moving forward. You have to be acting decisively because that gives you that data-rich information stream. Most people are so terrified to make a mistake. They're so paralyzed by indecision because they don't know which is right, that they never make a decision. They never hit that data-rich stream and they don't learn very fast and so they move 10 times, 20 times, (coughs) 100 times more slowly than the next person who's willing to act, who's willing to make mistakes, who's not afraid to look stupid. So that's the key. As I'm sure you've heard said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. (coughs) I will modify that and say the only thing that we have to fear is indecision. Man, this cough is like really messing with me. (coughs) I had to give a talk today at Google, and for the first like (coughs) 10 minutes, I sounded just like this, like I'm dying, and then it wears off. So (coughs) let me just bear with me. I'll make sure I give you nuggets of gold. Yeah, Connor is going to hate his job today. All right. Next question, David Beer. I have a question about how you research people. You... (coughs) God, (coughs) you mentioned how deep you go, understanding their world, but how deep do you really go? Specifically, what is your (coughs) step-by-step process? I'm laughing at myself here. And how much time do you spend on it? All right, so I really do go deep, and I spend probably average 10 to 12 hours on a main episode guest That's reading their book. It's watching all of their videos. (coughs) Mm. And doing all of that, the key thing that I do, and this is where there's really two things that I do that I think really separate my style. Number one, I follow my fascinations. And oftentimes, my fascination will lead me to look up something really obscure, (coughs) And in doing that, I stumble upon oftentimes like a real piece of humanity. And that's where people really, really end up connecting with the guests. And certainly that's where the guest ends up connecting with me. And don't underestimate the power of the guest connecting with me and then being willing to lower their guard. And that's why a lot of times people say that I get something out of people that other people don't because the guest feels very safe. And that, that's a really critical part of my interview style. So, um, (coughs) one example of this was with, um, Seth Godin. And I came across this tidbit where he said, um, I once cried when, um, Leonard Nimoy died. And I thought, whoa, that's so weird. Like, what would make him cry about that? What is that? And so going down that rabbit hole and trying to figure out what his relationship is, reading some of his blog articles around that, around characters, narration, uh, the difference between Star Wars and um, and Star Trek, and you really start to get an understanding of where he might go. Now, I don't always live by the following maxim, but this may be one of the most important um, things if you're trying to copy my interview style, one of the most important things to know is I try never to ask a question to which I don't already know the answer. Now, hopefully it doesn't feel that way. Hopefully it feels very spontaneous on set. But the reality is I'm trying to take the interview somewhere and when it's something that really fascinates me, I want to understand why they say that. And the reason I understand why they've said the saying that fascinates me, <coughs> the reason I need to understand that, excuse me, is because I need to know if their answer is going to be valuable to you, the audience. That's, that's huge, right? My obligation is to you guys. My obligation is to figure out how do I take this person somewhere where they, A, haven't already said this, that thing a thousand times. And then B, that when you hear this new piece of information that they have, that you're actually going to be interested. So I'm always looking for things that you guys can adapt into your own life. And whenever something is an operational level belief system, then I'm really excited. So in a nutshell, those are the things that I'm really trying to do. I'm trying to follow my own fascination to make sure that I'm really interested in what they're saying so that I can be super authentic on set, that they will feel... that they will feel really heard and understood. (coughs) Connor, you're going to have to cut all these out, man. This is just getting fucking crazy. Not yet. Um, So I want them to feel heard and understood. I want there to be a real connection. I want to be going a layer deeper than anybody else. And I want to know, I know how they're going to answer that question so that I can follow it up with another question. Or if they say something um, and it takes us into new territory, maybe even my response catches me off guard on set to something they say and now we go somewhere new, Um, then I know how to bring it back because I know all the areas that I want to touch on because I really have a 360 degree view of the person. All right. So I think that's enough on that. Jenna Robinson, I'm currently reading Mastery and there's a part where Robert Greene says, in your 20s, you should go through an apprenticeship phase. Does this contradict your idea of having a super specific goal where you can map out every zigzag? How would you do that when you're in this experimental phase of your life when you're trying to figure out what career you want? (coughs) So it doesn't contradict it. They're just different parts of your life, different times in your life and the, one of the most powerful parts of the mastery phase is that you've really identified what you want to do. And once you've identified what you want to do, going and working with the master is one of the ways to really rapidly gain the skills that you need. So there's two parts. There's the exploratory phase where you're not sure what you want to do. And I wouldn't try to prematurely optimize by going down the path of gaining mastery. I would just try to experience a lot of things. I would play with them. I would dabble. And see which one really strikes your fancy. Once you know which one really strikes your fancy, you're super interested, that's the path you want to go down. You've maybe even begun going down the process of gaining mastery already, and you realize, I love this. I love this enough to put in the work. I believe in what it's going to bring to me in terms of what mission it's going to allow me to accomplish. (coughs) Then, you go and engage with the master and you pour yourself into that study and working with them. And in doing so, they're gonna shorten your learning curve, which is incredibly, incredibly powerful. So um, spending your 20s in that phase, if you've already gotten to the point where you know that's what you wanna do, then that's amazing. If it takes you into your 30s, so be it. But before you start optimizing, which is what you're doing with the master, you wanna make sure that you first know that that really is the area that you wanna go down. All right. <clears throat> Day-day. Day-day. Many people do not execute on their goals because they lack a clear vision of all of their pathways to success. How did you go about finding options C and D instead of just choosing A and B? Um, Uh, that's not really how I think about it, if I'm honest. So what I do is I play a game called No Bullshit, What Would It Take? And I try to work backwards from success. And I say that I'm working backwards in a slightly different way than I normally mean it. What I'm talking about is I find a path where anybody you tell would be like, yeah, well, 100% that would work. No one would do it. It's crazy. It's not technologically feasible. Whatever thing they say then after that. But yes, if you could do that, that would work. Like if I said you had to commute, um, you know, 20 miles in LA, and you had to do it in less than 30 minutes at rush hour. Well, what would you do? You would have to fly in a helicopter. Everybody would say, Yep, (coughs) that would work. You can't afford it, but that would work. And then you can work backwards from there, and you see people doing things like building drones now that carry a single person. They worked with the FAA to actually get them legal. (coughs) So, That's how something like that is really going to work is somebody started from, well, I know what success looks like. Now it becomes how do we make a feasible version of that rather than what most people do, which is think of where they are today and think how impossible it would be to get there in their car, they first started a car and then they start thinking maybe they would do a motorcycle. Okay, that's working from failure and trying to work forward. Instead, work from success, something you know, guaranteed home run, it works, and then look at what are the things that stand in your way. (coughs) and if some of the things that stand in your way, in the case of a helicopter, cost, then it becomes a question of, can you reduce the cost of that method? So uh, we talked about this before we started Quest. How would we end metabolic disease? Well, we knew if we could make food that people chose based on taste and it happened to be good for them, then it would work because we'd be leveraging people's um, own behaviors against them, their desire to um, eat hyperpalatable foods, uh, packaged, convenienced, well-marketed, all that stuff. That's what's driving eating behavior. So if we could take advantage of that and then just slide in something that was actually good for you, then we really had a shot. Doing the same thing here at Impact Theory, I know to get the average person to adopt an empowering belief system, it has to come in the form of entertainment, has to be someone invisible, it's gotta be baked into the cultural subconscious, and that over time, people just begin to think like that. So um, that's why we're doing it that way. So more than I'm, you know, I'm thinking, uh, oh, here's path number one, <clears throat> I'm thinking, what's the most real, <clears throat> what's the most realistic, plausible path? And then does it meet other criteria? Can it be monetized? Am I going to have fun? Am I passionate about both the path and the goal? So all of those things play into it as well. All right. Josh Moranian I realize that I don't have a super specific goal, but I have a clear vision of what my goal looks like. I know I am going to be leading a team company in an industry I'm passionate about. My question is how can I specify my goal without limiting my paths to get where I want in my career? How can I specify my goal without limiting my paths? Yeah, so <clears throat> the, the problem is you don't actually know what your goal looks like. So this is the, the, the quintessential question I get asked is as somebody who says that they have a clear vision of their goal, but then what they describe is something as super vague as, I know I'm gonna be leading a team company in an industry that I'm passionate about. Okay, please understand that is a hopelessly vague statement. Like that is vague in the most aggressive way possible. And it's the vagaries of that that then create the problem. So, Because you don't know what to execute against. You don't know what kind of products to make. You don't know who your consumers are. So when doing a business, when doing anything in life, you, you really have to get down to the level of just absolutely ridiculous hyper-specificity. So the example that I always use is of the Olympics. The, uh, the goal that you have is as vague as saying, I want to win a gold medal. So first of all, you want to win a gold medal in what? The Olympics? Okay, cool. You want to win an Olympic gold medal. Winter or summer? Okay, summer. Tennis? Swimming? Like, what is it? Swimming? Okay, great. Do you want to do the breaststroke? Do you want to do the medley? Like, what exactly is it? Until you know the very specific event in the sport in the games that you want to play, you're not going to know how you should train. And at the end of the day, it's the training. It's the acquisition of skills. That's really what you're trying to get down to. That's why you need the hyper degree of specificity because without that, you can't A, drive forward. You can't acquire the right skills. And B, if you don't know exactly where you're going, then you'll never know if you're making progress. So when you have a goal that's super vague, like, I want to drive around in my car. Okay, great. Like, you're driving around in your car. Now what? You don't know whether you're going in the right direction. You don't know if you're making any progress. So you really have to pin this stuff down to a just an insanely clear and specific place. Once you have that, then you'll know what you should be training in and whether or not you're making progress. Steven Schrembeck. <clears throat> I've been working on Ray Dalio's radical truth principle for two months now, But radical transparency is a huge hurdle. How do I practice radical transparency without pissing off everyone in my life who doesn't get it? Do I need to ask permission to be honest? Is that good enough? I will say that this is near impossible to do with everyone in your life. If people don't buy into it, it is absolutely not going to work. One, Ray Dalio's principles is written within the context of people who have agreed to be a part of a team. So whether it's at a job, I think you can get people to agree there. If it's in your immediate family, you can get people to agree there. But once it starts going farther than that, like unless you have... Um, a soccer team or something where you can actually get people to come together. You can present the idea and see if they buy into it. Um, It's pretty hard to abide by Ray Dalio's principles without people actually buying into that. So that's first and foremost. It's gotta be applied to a group that will actually buy into it. it. It really won't work. It'll be totally dysfunctional for you to just try to do it. Now, you can live your life by principles and you can be radically honest and transparent about yourself. You can even decide that you wanna be radically transparent with other people, and you can train them to only ask you questions if they really want to know the truth. But what you've got to ask is, what do you hope to get out of that? Because if people haven't bought in to radical transparency, you will come across like a jerk. It won't be read well. Chances are they're going to diminish the um, frequency with which they invite you to be a part of their group. But if you're okay with that, if it's not groups that you want to be a part of, if you only want to be around people that are living in principles, then maybe that's perfectly fine. But you need to really think through exactly what it is you're trying to get And I would say that ultimately, Ray Dalio's principles are specifically for people who are in a group that will all buy in. All right, Mischief Co. I started an online business a year ago, and things are going really well. Recently, sales have dropped to the point where I'm quickly eating my way into my savings every month. I don't know if I should quit this business and start a new one, go back to a nine-to-five, or stick this out. What advice do you have for someone who's struggling with a rough time in their business? To me, this all comes down to none of those are wrong answers. So this all comes down to what do you really want? Like, what's your identity? What's your mission in life? What are you really trying to accomplish? So if that business is just a path on a way to a bigger goal that you believe in with all of your heart and soul, then it might be worth shutting that one down and starting something new. It might be worth buckling down and figuring out where you're going wrong Using austerity measures in your company, cutting off every ounce of fat, getting super lean, um, figuring out what's happened in the marketplace, pivoting, like finding that, solving that problem. If you're not emotionally hung up on the money and having to step backwards financially, like if you can really hunker down and solve that problem, could be beautiful. Maybe some of the most powerful lessons that you'll learn in business. Um, on the flip side, if you have uh, didn't notice the changing in sales fast enough that there's just a tsunami of debt on the business or something and you can't get out from under it, then closing that business down and starting something new with the fresh knowledge, maybe that's the way to go but it really all comes down to what exactly it is you're trying to accomplish. I know none of these are easy, and I know especially if you have debt in the business or you took money from friends and family or something like that, this can be incredibly, incredibly stressful. I'm not downplaying that, but just make sure that you're looking at yourself on a long time horizon, that you're not judging yourself through the lens of a moment, and that you know what your ultimate goal is. And So if this business is a failure, but it teaches you something that you needed in order to actually get where you're ultimately going and just to differentiate, like for instance, with impact theory, my mission is to pull people out of the matrix, to give them an empowering belief system. I think the way to do that is through social content and traditional narrative content. Should I find that that isn't right or that I'm not good at it and that I'm not able to do what I want from a business perspective with those two paths and I have to pivot at some point and do it another way? Hey, so be it. I'll take my losses. I'll figure it out. I'll regroup and I'll move forward again. But that all comes down to me knowing where I'm ultimately trying to go. I'm not ultimately trying to build the studio. That's a very fun way that I happen to think is the right way, but it's very possible that over time, I learn that that's not true and that I have to pivot and do something different. Um, And it just so happens that I'm more passionate about the end result of pulling people out of the matrix than I am the struggle of building a studio. So building the studio is only worth me risking my fortune and all of that because I so believe in what I think it's going to let me do on a cultural subconscious level, embedding an empowering belief system. Um, So if it didn't have that, then I wouldn't be doing it. So that's where that plays out. So um, none of those are bad. Like going back and taking a nine to five, there's no uh, reason why you shouldn't. Like if that feels awesome right now and you're like so tired carrying all the responsibility on your shoulders and it sounds awesome to go find a company that you really believe in, they're really doing something you're passionate about and they're good people, like go plug in, man, that's amazing. This, this is a know thyself moment. And so just really take careful assessment of what your... Um, what your identity is, what you want it to be, have compassion for yourself and really plan for long-term fulfillment. Don't worry about whether that business was a win or a loss. On a long enough timeline, it's just really not gonna matter. All right, next up, Ryan Jacobs. Hi, Tom. You're doing an amazing job with the show, especially your communication skills. Thank you. How did you learn to communicate so well? Were there any certain books or people that helped you learn how to use appropriate language in effectively communicating explanations or ideas to others? Um, First, yes. I mean, I've just read so many books. It'd be impossible to list them out here. Uh, But you can find my top 27 now, I think that it is, at impacttheory.com. Um, Head there. And by the way, today's episode is brought to you by the Impact Theory logo shirt. So head to shop.impacttheory.com right now to pick yours up uh, and remind yourself through self-signaling of what this whole ecosystem and way of thinking is all about. Um, But yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of books. Like I said, the 27 are there in order that I think people should read them. Um, Beyond that, just an insane amount of practice And being willing to hear feedback. So, I've been doing speech and debate since I was like 14 years old, maybe 13. Uh, Started in high school and just really threw myself into that. And you're actually getting judged and critiqued and you're getting feedback. And from the beginning, I just had to take that feedback. And then as I've gotten older, as a leader, really accepting your losses, accepting things that you really mess up, uh, allowing yourself to hear from employees, how you could be doing it better. Just always lowering your defenses, lowering your ego, hearing the hard things, um, Being hungry to adjust and grow and get better, all of that is super key. So when you really want to know the truth, when you really hunger to understand what you're doing wrong, how you could be doing something better, that's when you're really going to start to win. So make sure that you actually want to know the truth because the thing that you have just forced into your life, the thing that lights you on fire emotionally is actual improvement. When you're lit on fire by actual improvement and all your dopamine and serotonin come rushing in as a result of actual improvement, suddenly you'll hunger to hear the truth, even when it's harsh. That's how you get better. Just practice, 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 practice. All right, Anonymous. How do you go about removing people from your life who you feel are not in line with your principles and lifestyle? How do you wean them out of your life without being a total asshole about it? So my thing is, honestly, I just let space happen naturally. And space usually does happen pretty naturally. Um, like everything in your life, if you want to build something new, don't focus on tearing down the old, Old, focus on building the new. So Rather than worrying about eliminating old friends from your ecosystem, focus on building new friends into your ecosystem. Go spend time with those guys. Fill your life with that, with awesome stuff. Um, and then it's up to you like exactly what you want to tell people. Um, Vanessa Van Edwards says that she thinks people should actually break up with friends and actually have the conversation to sit down with people and just say, look, I think we're in different places in our lives um, and I don't think this friendship makes sense anymore. That never hit me well and I think she is Brilliant. But this is one place where she and I disagree. It just seems super awkward to me um, and unnecessary. And maybe this is a super dude thing. Um, but the friendships in my life that have evolved into something else, I've just let them evolve into something else. And the reason that I do that is I never know, man. We could evolve back in the same direction again. And having made some big thing about breaking up with them just seems super weird to me. Um, so I like leaving it open and maybe we'll reconnect. And plus, hopefully, um, at least in the people in my life, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of people still have love for, and so if we were to find common ground, again, it'd be awesome. Um, so yeah, I just let time and space do its work. All right, time for one more question. Daniel Breeze. <clears throat> hey, Tom, did you... Hey, Tom, you mentioned that you finally figured out how to read while working out. How? So the key for me on this is there's only certain types of things that I can read while I'm working out. If I need to be taking a lot of notes, I can't do it, <clears throat> so it needs to be something like. Uh, when i 'm reading for somebody coming on the show because I read in swarms, so i 'm not so worried about taking every little detail in, so if i 'm doing a set and the set 's really intense and I miss you know ten or fifteen seconds of the book, not a big deal because i 'm going to listen to eight videos or you know fifteen videos on them talking about the book anyway <clears throat> so i 'm going to get that information from a thousand different angles so it 's basically anything that I can read podcast work for this where it 's like it 's a flowy conversation so as long as you're getting, say, 80%, you're getting most of what you want to get versus when I'm really trying to read like Ray Dalio's Principles. I would never read at a first pass while working out. It's just too information dense and I want to take notes and you know, I want to make sure that I'm really focused on it and really writing things down. Um, so it really comes down to things like biographies where it's not like I'm taking a lot of notes per page or when I'm prepping for somebody I, and thusly I'm reading in swarms or when I'm... Um, listening to a podcast, which is more conversational. All right, there you have it. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. Forgive me, the beginning of this was really weird cadence because I was coughing to death. Hopefully, we were able to edit a lot of that out. Uh, I'm at the tail end of a really weird sickness that's been sort of light emotionally, hasn't been super destructive, uh, but come with some pretty heinous coughing. So, Nonetheless, thank you for joining me again. I'm traveling uh, this Friday, which is why we had to do this now. If there are any comic book fans that are interested in what we're doing, it is fucking heating up over here on the comic book side. I'm super stoked. We're about to sign our first writer. Very amped. Going to be making an announcement about the first book in July, dropping it in October. It's all going to be good stuff. Revealing the celebrity that's involved. All of it. Gonna be amazing. Uh, So if you're going to be in Chicago at the Comic-Con, be sure to uh, hit me with a DM, ping me. It'd be great to connect. All right, guys. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.